Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Telling stories, or at least telling stories for business, has no purpose if it's not directly tied to action. The good news is... Stories are extremely effective at that action. What type of action, you might ask? That means raising money for someone to support your idea or fund your company. The most important action, maybe. Well, that's exactly what I talk about with my guest on today's show. What's up, storytellers? Welcome back to the Storytelling Lab podcast. This is episode 136, and today my guest is Robbie Crabtree. Robbie is the founder of something called Competitive Storytelling, which when I first heard it, to me, it makes me think of uh, what I used to do in Story Slams, which was stand up and tell a five-minute story with a predetermined theme that you are judged uh, by a panel of judges in a competition against uh, seven or nine other storytellers at night. That's not exactly what this is. This is his company that helps founders raise money using storytelling strategies, and he has helped his clients raise more than $500 million. Now, when you start to learn Robbie's story, as I did in this this conversation, you understand what that word competitive storytelling means. Uh, He is a former athlete. Uh, like a lot, like a lot of the guests I have actually that that have that approach. Then he became a trial lawyer. Okay, so his whole life has been about competition. How do my strategies, or how do his strategies, lead to action and hopefully victory? Okay, so this is a very specific way he approaches stories with helping people raise capital. Now, telling stories for story's sake in in the business sense or from a business perspective is not helpful because it doesn't help you achieve anything. Yes, you can raise brand awareness. Yes, you can get people kind of talking about your company, but at the end of the day, you are here to make people take an action no matter what stage of your business you're in and if you're trying to raise money or if you're trying to pitch your idea well you need them to sign on the dotted line you need them to fund your company you need them to invest in your company you need them to buy your product whatever it is you need them to take an action 
He understands the power of storytelling and, and being authentic and, and sharing your personal story, but he also understands how to establish authority, how to be prepared. He says that the best impromptu speakers aren't actually speaking impromptu. So we talk about how to practice in a way that makes you precise, that makes you good and qualified and effective as a storyteller. If you have a business or a brand that ever has to rely on someone choosing you. Listen, spoiler alert, we all have businesses that rely on someone choosing us, even if it's our customer or our investors. So this applies to all of us. This conversation is going to help you. I can't tell you how much is jam-packed in this episode, and it moves fast. So pay attention, listen at half speed, or better yet, listen a couple times and make sure you review afterwards. (laughs) Here is my conversation with Robbie Crabtree, and I hope that you love it. Welcome to the Storytelling Lab, where we break down how to get to the heart of your story and the hearts of your audience to leave the greatest impact possible. And now here's your host, award-winning filmmaker and writer, Rain Bennett. What's up, my beautiful people? Welcome to another episode of the Storytelling Lab, where we help you break down the art and science of storytelling. My name is Rain Bennett. I am your host, and my job is to help you deepen your connections, increase your sales, and serve your audiences better. Every Tuesday morning, I send out a quick storytelling tip to my newsletter subscribers. I show you techniques I've learned along my journey and used in my own stories, as well as those of my clients. But most importantly, I leave you with tangible takeaways that you can apply to your brand storytelling immediately. Oh, well, actually, more importantly than that, it's free. If this would help you, sign up for the newsletter at rainbennett.com slash weekly storytelling tips. Hey, Robbie, welcome to the show. Uh, let's get into it, man. Uh, I've been, I haven't known really about you and your content for very long, but we're all like kind of in the same space. And so a lot of our mutual friends or mutual connections uh introduced me to you i don't remember if it was a very specific moment but since then i've been really attracted to the content that you're putting out because i it should be this way it kind of go it should go without saying but uh it's very specific in the lane that you kind of own in the storytelling space and a lot of people aren't a lot of people are just kind of hovering here in this you know general uh storytelling space so uh the the first thing i want to do just to kind of catch people up to speed is like what is competitive storytelling? What does that mean to you? What should that mean to us? The entire thesis that I have around competitive storytelling is that the world runs on the best stories. Okay. But I look at that from a history major perspective and also a trial lawyer and said, where are the biggest impacts coming from in today's world? And when I look at today's world, we're looking at how do we solve big issues about the future? That could be climate tech. It could be sustainability. It could be social inequality. It could be supply chains. Like you name, what are the big issues that need to be solved to build a better future? Once we have that, then the idea really came, okay, so who's solving those issues? Who are the people that are approaching them in interesting and novel ways? And that is people in the startup world, people in the venture world, private equity, 
uh, really these capital markets that are willing to take moonshot ideas, drawing on JFK's 1962 speech, right? We'll put a man on the moon. So from that, what competitive storytelling is, is how do I take the things that I did in a courtroom as a trial lawyer, convincing 12 jurors to vote guilty or not guilty, depending on which side of the case I was on, how do I take those principles as a, from a storyteller and bring them to the people in this world so that they can tell stories that create action? Because that's the biggest thing that I care about is can we create a story that inspires somebody to take action? That could be writing a check for tens of millions of dollars. That could be the you know former CMO of Meta joining an early stage startup to say like, I want to go and work on this big problem but I'm not going to get paid that much for it. And I'm still willing to come. So really what competitive storytelling is, where can we have the most impact from a capitalistic perspective that is going to do good in the world and make sure that the people who are going after that positive impact have the skills from a storytelling perspective to change the world. Uh, I'm already digging this conversation because you're already taking it kind of where, where I wanted to. So I'm excited to, to, to continue. Um, you kind of, you know, not skirted past, but like you touched on your history and your background as a trial lawyer. I want to go back to that a little bit and, and learn a little bit more about, I'm always interested in like the path that led someone there, right? Because to me, that that informs your unique perspective. Obviously, you've already laid out it uh, fairly clearly with the trial lawyer background, but what led you to that? Is that, was that your dream? Is that what you always wanted to do? Like, how did you get to that space? First, I wanted to be a professional basketball player. I thought I was going to be Michael Jordan. Uh, right. Sadly, I realized I was not. Uh, second, <laughs> then I wanted to be the next Ken Griffey Jr. and play professional baseball. So did I always want to be a trial lawyer? No, I wanted to be an athlete. Uh, but I very quickly realized that was not what was going to take me there. So if we think about it, it's very much like the Steve Jobs quote. We can connect the dots when we look backwards. Right. I, I wouldn't have known it at the time, but there was uh, in sixth grade, I did a, a project in my English class around propaganda. And we literally were looking at different, you know, news media, magazines, newspapers, television, and picking apart what propaganda tools they were using and how the same story was being covered in different ways, depending on who was doing it. Now, this is really what started me down the whole idea of narrative design, narrative control, storytelling, if you will. That led me into, you know, high school. I did, I competed in extemporaneous speech and debate. I was asked to speak in front of, you know, hundreds and thousands of potential new students at the private high school I went to. And I thought that was just like a normal thing, to be completely honest. I, <laughs> I, I, they asked me to do it. And I was like, sure, why not? Yeah. And it was very easy. Now, that doesn't mean my entire journey speaking has been easy because I had a lisp and a stutter growing up. Just for anybody who thinks this is just like, oh, it's always been easy. That could right. be from the truth. But in high school, I realized that I, I had kind of this talent because when I asked my friends, like, why don't you do this? And they said, I'd be terrified to stand in front of those people. So then that takes me into undergrad and undergrad. My, my dad tried to, to get me to be a economics major, which was a horrible idea because I don't like math. And my, my grade in calculus in my freshman year of college showed that. And I said "Dad, I've always wanted to be a history major. Like that's the stuff I love. And I convinced him that I could be a history major if I would go to, to law school afterwards, which also made sense to me because at the time I was watching the West Wing, which would become my favorite show of all time. And I'm looking at all these people who are in the political world yeah. uh, doing that. And I ended up writing my senior thesis actually on the rise of the religious right from Jimmy Carter to Ronald Reagan, looking at Jerry Falwell Sr. and how he was able to use narrative design and narrative control to turn a religious group of people into a political organization that really affected the 1980s, 1990s in American politics 
And I wrote it because it was post-Obama election when Jerry Falwell Jr., his son, was rising to power as well. And so if we look at it, virtually my entire life has been public speaking, narrative, storytelling, propaganda, influence, like always being obsessed with these ideas. And then being a history major, I always studied the, the great leaders of the world, right? The Alexander the Greats, the Napoleons, the Julius Caesars, the Augustus, uh, you name it. I've always been interested in those people and how they built societies. And largely it was through their oratory, their rhetoric, their ability to move the masses in the way that they told a story about what they could do. And so I said, this makes sense to go into a courtroom as a trial lawyer, because that's the trenches. That's the arena yeah. in terms of today's world. Like where else can you get immediate feedback from 12 people who say you told the best story or the other side told the best story. And we're going to make these huge life-changing decisions based on what I do over a matter of a week in convincing and influencing someone that I am correct and I am right and they should trust and believe me and vote my way. And so that was kind of the journey to get into being a lawyer. And then I tried 102 jury trials and all sorts of stuff there. I know a lot of the listeners to the show are public speakers or they want to become public speakers, but the problem that many experienced and aspiring professional speakers face is that they simply don't have the time to grow their business the way they would like. And look, I get it. I've been there. Maybe you're there right now. That's why I started using the team at Virtual Campfires to provide me with leads to events and conferences that are a good fit for my message. So they send me all the relevant details I need to immediately reach out and start a conversation with those decision makers. And they've worked with hundreds of speakers to provide tens of thousands of event leads, and it's easy to see why. Outsourcing this time-consuming step has saved me hours and hours of scanning Google and lets me go faster towards my goal of more events, more audiences, and more impact. All you need to do is email leads at virtualcampfires.com to see how their lead subscription business can help you the same way it's helped me. Again, that's leads at virtualcampfires.com. Let them help you tell more great stories and get paid for it. What is it about, because I often run into people that have found success, not everybody, this is a generalization, um, that come from an athletic background. Uh, I come from an athletic background, too. It's influenced a lot of the, you know, the work that I do, the approach to the work that I do. What is it, if you can put your finger on it, about that mindset that like shapes the way you do your work now? Because when you're telling me that story, uh, your history there, like you've been competing, you know, since the beginning, right? So it's no like surprise that you even in storytelling now, you have a company called Competitive Storytelling. But what are the other way ways that that mindset, that experience has shaped the way you view the world and the work that you do in it? Well, it's interesting because, you know, I play college baseball uh -huh. and after college, I was kind of lost in trying to figure out what, what to do next. Because it's, it's really hard when you go from being a college athlete and that's your identity and you kind of lose that. Totally. And then I took up CrossFit. I ended up being a Nike sponsored CrossFit competitor for a number of years as well. <laughs> and there's so many lessons that come from that world. In fact, my chief of staff, the, the first person I ever hired, he was the captain of his college soccer team. Like I'm just right. drawn to athletes. It makes sense. Yep. What do you learn as an athlete? I mean, there's so many lessons I could probably do uh, a day long talk just on lessons of being an athlete. But I think what it teaches you, right, is there are no immediate rewards. Like you have to put in the work and, and just know that you're working towards something that may be six months away, 12 months away, and you have to trust the process. And you just have to be okay suffering in the short term to get the long term yeah. play that you want. And from there, not only is it that, but it's also you learn how to train yourself. 
and you almost make things tougher than you want them to be. I'll never forget one of my coaches when I was doing CrossFit, he's gone on to become the, uh, he coaches a number of the U.S. Olympic athletes for Olympic weightlifting. And when I was training at CrossFit, he happened to be one of our coaches and he had this exercise that we would do. So when we'd want to max out our back squat, we'd always run these cycles and they were brutal, brutal cycles. It'd be like 12 week training cycles where every time you lifted legs, like people would pass out. People would be, you know, like vomiting on the floor, black yeah, yeah. like it's just nasty, but it was always working towards this goal of on in the 12th week, we're going to be able to hit a new max. Mm-hmm. And we get to that max day, right? And I wanted to hit a 400-pound back squat. Like, that was my goal. Mm-hmm. I was 170 pounds. I'm six foot two, even though people many times don't know how tall I actually am. And I wanted to hit a 400-pound back squat. It was just that goal that I had in mind. And so I was getting ready to do it, right? I've got the, the metal music blasting in my headphones, knee wraps on, like belt ready to go. And my coach comes up and he starts like, you know, hitting me like you always hype people up. And he goes, come back here though. He's like, we got to put on more weight. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Like, this is the max I'm going for. It's 400 pounds. Like, I can't do more, right? He goes, no, put on more weight. Put on 425. And I was like, I'm telling you, I can't, like, 425 is going to crush me. And his, his words to me were very simple. He goes, you're not lifting this. All you're going to do is you're going to get under the bar. You're going to stand it up, take two steps back, and set like you're going to go down for a back squat. You're going to hold that weight there for about three seconds, and then I want you to walk it back and rack it. So I did this. And then we took off the extra weight. We took off the 25 pounds and it was back to 400. Well, what happened when I took the 400 out at that point was it felt really light to my body because I had just stood under 425. The 425 was a huge shock to my nervous system was like, whoa, whoa, Robbie, red flag. Do not do this. You're going to die. But because I just felt that when I did the 400, I was like, oh, I can do this. This feels comfortable. And sure enough, I lifted the 400 pounds. I was able to successfully back squat it. And when I came out and, you know, through the, through the headphones down, through the, the belt, celebrated with everybody. You know, it's, it's one of those like, you know, hype up moments. He comes up to me, he goes, now you understand why we did that. Right. And I said, yeah, because by feeling the heavier weight, it made the, the weight I wanted to hit much, much easier. Mm-hmm. And I think about that a lot where we do the hard thing so that when we actually get to game day, it's much easier. And yeah. so much of that comes from that sport background where you realize you should be training harder. You should be pushed harder. You want that challenge to step into it so that when you need to perform, you never have any question that you're going to be able to deliver on game day. And it was the same lesson that I took in as a trial lawyer. My prep was harder than the trial ever was. That when I was in trial, it didn't matter what happened. I was ready to go. And this is where I think being an athlete is so valuable because you learn all those. Plus, you learn you're going to fail. You're going to lose. And sometimes you miss the 400-pound back squat. And you can't let that get in your head where you never go for it again. You just pick it back up. You work for it. And then you go and you crush the goal. Absolutely. It, it's really important to me to have these conversations or to ask this question because like I come from a world where, uh, you know, half of my friends, I'm a filmmaker is my, as my background, documentary filmmakers, but half my friends are just like, you know, are artist types. Uh, I'm an artist. I mean, but you know, like true born and bred artist. And then the other half, I'm a co-founder to start up or very like aggressive business mind and then uh, ex athletes, et cetera. And often this group of people, and again, I'm generalizing, 
view sport if they don't play sports they view sports from a certain like like angle and don't get the depth that's involved so it's always important to me to like have you know have those conversations and ask that question because to me it's like such a metaphor for life and it gets frustrating when somebody's like they don't play sports and they're just like they i don't know trivialize it or they're just like you know go sports ball and it's just like i oh, mean this, this has real meaning right it's not just a game that's the thing it's not just a game so appreciate you uh you know walking down that path with me um you also mentioned very quickly you know your love and and your uh study of history which i uh i also respect and empathize with i saw a quote uh, i took a screenshot of one of your linkedin posts the other day it was uh about a book you're reading you're telling a similar story about when you majored in history but you said when you understand the past you can be certain about the future and this creates inevitability i'm paraphrasing uh Elaborate on that for me, but then also, why is that important? Human nature does not change. As much as the conditions in our world may change, human nature does not change. This is why I love storytelling and, and so many others do as well, because if we go back throughout history, it's always been the storyteller who has controlled the narrative and held the power. It's what allowed humans to form groups of people and tribes, right? Because the idea of fiction bound us together around a central idea. And so you have that, you have people like Homer who wrote the Iliad, who trains centuries of people on honor and glory and duty and all the things that you're supposed to do. But then we have people in the Roman, Roman Senate who are standing up and delivering these stories. And then you have in today's world, you have politicians who go on news media and try to control the narrative and try to influence people in the way that they see the world. We have identity politics, which is totally around the, the stories that are being told of this is right, this is wrong, this is right, this is wrong, this person's evil, this person is evil, this person's good, this person's bad. And what we see is if you understand history, you start to realize, oh, the rhetoric that's being used today is the exact same rhetoric that was used by these people at this time. And you can see what they're doing in the us versus them dynamic. And so why I say it's so important to understand history is when you understand those patterns in human nature, you can just move them forward and plant them and say, oh, here's how it's going to play out, given what's going on in the world today. Going back to the, the senior thesis I wrote, the reason I was so interested, interested in that was because Jerry Falwell Jr. was rising to power and I was studying Jerry Falwell Sr. to see what was going to happen. Could I understand what Falwell Jr. was going to do based on what his father did you know, three decades earlier? Lo and behold, the exact same playbook is what happened because that's what humans do. We repeat and repeat and repeat. And we don't even realize we're doing it most no. of the time. It's just part of our nature. And so once you understand that, then it's just first principles, right? You understand what the first principles are of human nature and you can apply that to the world today. What's the adoption curve gonna be in AI? I don't know, look at the adoption curve when the internet came in. Look at the adoption curve of any major technology and you can essentially trace what's gonna happen there. It's no different. So the moment you get that, you can speak with this level of certainty because we've already seen this, this story play out. Right. In a different time, a little bit different circumstances, but the story's already existed. Yeah. And it's just, a, it's just a repeat. This is why, you know, people talk a lot about hero's journey and you can look at the hero's journey, right? Star Wars, hero's journey, Harry Potter, hero's journey. It's not like, like you could have seen episode, the first movie of Harry Potter and known exactly what was going to happen throughout that entire book series before jk rowling ever wrote it because we've already seen the story play out right. in star wars yeah 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you have that understanding, that grasp of narratives too, you can do that. You know, basically with any movie, you can identify pretty much where it's going to go because you understand the story beats. That's that's a a great connection that history operates this the same way. That was really well answered. I appreciate that. Let's go back to you know when we first started the conversation. Uh, I kind of spoke about appreciating how very specific you are in your storytelling space. Um, and, you know, like an athlete, you tied that to like, well, what's the goal? What's the objective? Like we're trying to achieve action of some sort uh, versus just storytelling for inspiration or like general motivation or something like that. Uh, so let's get into what makes a story work? Not just what makes a good story, right? Because you can do that just for like entertainment, but like what makes a story actually work in the sense of inspire someone to take that action that you're trying to motivate them to take? For me, it comes down to, does that story that you're talking about, does it paint such a compelling picture of what if, of mm. that future? Mm-hmm. That that person says, I don't know that you're like, I don't know that it will come true. I don't know that if I do this thing, it's going to work exactly how you told me it will, but it's worth a shot. Like the, the reward is so great that I want to be a part of that future. Like if we think about it as there's 10 different realities at any point, right. And I can paint different, like a story. And the story is maybe just one of the 10 realities. Mm-hmm. My goal is, do you want that one of 10 realities to be the one that actually exists? And if it does, are you willing to be a part of that journey and be a character in that story and to play your role to make it come true? That's how I think about it is everyone has different choices and different options. And we all know that like we can make different decisions to go different routes in our lives, right? And so my goal is when I work with a founder, I tell a story. My goal is to make it so clear that this one version is the only one that you want to be a part of. That is the only thing that is going to get you the ultimate outcome you are looking for. And that's something that is worth taking a risk, taking the leap off the cliff and saying, I don't know if it's going to work, but if it does, that's the world that I want to live in. And to me, it's a sense of inspiration and hope and a brighter future for not only that person, but for, for other people as well and thinking through second and third order consequences. So when I think about storytelling, it's not just painting the picture of the future of what it looks like on a surface level. It's going much deeper where they start thinking, wow, this is going to happen then and this is going to happen and this is going to happen and this is going to happen. And it almost invites them, this is what I call soft storytelling, to take ownership of the story mm-hmm. and say, I'm going to put myself into it and figure out how I can make that story continue to take roots and continue to sprout. Why did you stop practicing law? So one, uh, as you can imagine, trying 102 jury trials on murders, capital murders, and child abuse cases is very dark. Yeah. Uh, it, it, is a, it is a nightmare hellscape that very few people will ever understand unless you've lived in that world. Hmm. Uh, the stuff I've seen, the, the places of humanity that I've, I've had to go and witness and experience is, is beyond what most people could, could stomach. Uh, to the point that most juries that I would try cases in front of, most of them would end up in therapy after hearing just one of the cases that I was trying. Mm. So there's that piece. The second piece is being a trial lawyer is very reactive in that world, right? I can put the pieces back together or try, but the event, the trauma still happened. The lives are still ruined. 
when you look at that, that's obviously not the place I want to live. I want to live in a proactive world. And instead of focus on the nightmare, I want to build dreams. And so I said, I can't do that inside of a courtroom trying these cases, even though by all accounts, I was very talented at that, that work. I did not lose a child abuse case. I knew what I was doing. I knew how to win. I knew how to move people, but I wanted to build something better. And as I thought about it too, when you look at being a trial lawyer and what I did, I would try a case, I'd win the case. And then I'd go to my office the next day and I had 10 new cases on my desk. So was I really having that impact? So I started thinking to myself, well, if we're not solving the problem just by putting the bandaid over each case that comes into our office, what if I could go out front and start working on some of the bigger issues that are going to have these downstream consequences that are going to potentially mean maybe there's 1% less child abuse cases. Well, if there's 1% less child abuse cases because I've worked on a problem that solves a bigger issue that impacts that world, that's a much bigger impact than trying 15 jury trials in a year that I could do as a prosecutor. That's where I started looking at it. And that's why I left because I wanted to find a way to have that bigger impact. And that's why I went into the world that I did because I said, where can we solve the biggest issues? Where can we solve why, why are immigrants who come so vulnerable to these types of crimes? Well, it's because they can't report them and because they don't want to get deported. And the, the defendants, the people, the perpetrators of these crimes know that. So they take advantage of these people. What if there's a way to solve that where we can make something different, where it's easier for them to get the after school care that their kids need so they're not being watched by the creepy uncle who's staying at home with them and volunteers because they know, oh, mom's not going to be able to report this even if something comes out. Those are the kinds of thoughts that I had in my mind. And it was, where can I take the skills that I have as a trial lawyer and apply them to the maximum impactful benefit of not only society, but also selfishly for myself? Like, where can I do good, live good, build a, you know, real kind of legacy for myself? And when I looked at all that, that's how I came out to where I did. And so let's talk about the transition. What was the, what was the first step out of that space? Uh, first step out was just absolute terror because I had no idea what I was doing. Let's, let's it's a big honest. leap. It's a big leap. Let's, let's be honest. Yeah. Uh, it's very easy. Once you get to a level as a trial lawyer, like, you know, you just have predictable work. Like, yeah. you know, that you can pretty much always earn a good living. Uh, if you want to, like, there's just no issue, but it, it just wasn't right. So the first thing is just terror of, of what do I do? I'm thinking to myself, I want to be a part of this world, but I don't know anybody. I don't know a single founder. I don't know a single person in venture capital. I don't know any investors. I don't know any people who have worked in tech. I lived in Dallas, Texas at the time. Not exactly a hub of, you know, the startup ecosystem back then. It's gotten better since. Yeah. But the, the reality was I just didn't know. So I started just sharing my ideas online and, and trying to get people to, to connect with me. I joined some communities, started talking to people, got to know them that opened some doors. Then I built it. I started to build an ed tech because I was like, all right, well, if I, if I want to be a part of this tech world, well, maybe I should do the thing that tech founders do, which is build. And so that's when I first built an ed tech around public speaking specifically for tech employees, which was the, the lowest hanging fruit for me, right? It's very easy to convince people, Hey, you should trust that I know how to build something in public speaking, considering my background. And that was kind of the entry point into that world, which ultimately ended up getting acquired at the end of 2020 by a, a series B tech company. And that was really what opened up the door in a large way for me to really do the work that I do today. But I mean, it was, I bootstrapped it. I maxed out credit cards to $80,000. Like mm. I took out everything. Like I had no savings, no money. I didn't know where rent was going to get paid. So like, I, I know that journey. Like I know that stress. I know what it feels like. 
but I just went for it. I burned the bridges. I burned the ships. I had no, no way, no way out. And somehow made it through and, and got to the other side. And after that acquisition is when, uh, is when you started building what you have now competitive storytelling. Yeah. So once I, once I did that, then it was time to go and build competitive storytelling and really go after the, the work I do today. And, and was that concept very clear in your mind at that time, or was it an evolution? The concept was very clear. The execution took time to evolve and figure out exactly the best way to, to deliver that. Yeah. Uh, even today, I, I still feel like we've only scratched the surface in terms of what, what the, the vision really is. Um, but we're, you know, a little about two, two and a half years into really building competitive storytelling. And like anyone knows, it takes a little bit of time to, to grow those things, which, you know, like any, any athlete, while I'm both like, I understand patience and building, I'm also impatient for the results, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, you want to, you know, you want to be able to dunk the basketball yeah. And uh, it's, a, it's a healthy balance, right? That impatience is, is ambition too, right? That's what pushes you to, to that, uh, to achieve that skill. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. I have a, let's do, let's do a little live workshop. Uh, I mentioned briefly, I'm a co-founder at a new startup. It's in the storytelling space and, and, um, and I'm the, you know, kind of creative person on the team. So my CEO, for example, um, is not, and he would have no problem with me putting that public. He's hates public speaking. He doesn't understand storytelling. He has zero social media. Uh, and you know, I suppose you may run into those founders, uh, from time to time or people who just have no idea where to start when it comes to telling their story, you know, public facing work, et cetera. Some, some are inherently very good, but to those like my, uh, my, um, CEO, like, we've kind of brushed on this subject a little bit, but where, where do they start? Like, like where would you start with someone like that in terms of helping them shape their story, helping them get comfortable, which is what we mentioned earlier, just putting themselves out there on a consistent basis. Like let's go to like step one. Yeah, step one is simple. We have to nail the founder story. And it is the piece that so many founders skip and don't hit on and yet it's the most important piece because the founder is the entire thing that makes the company go. And so we've got to know what makes them special. Why, like why they're doing this, what like really get into who they are, what kind of DNA do they have? Do you, do you run into those people though for that, that are like, Oh, I'm not, it's not about me. It's about the company, you know, like, you know what I mean? That they, they kind of deflect when putting personal attention on themselves. We see that fairly often when, you know, I'll, I'll start working with somebody, but we very quickly get over that. Again, this goes back to when you understand human nature and so much of, of my life as a trial lawyer, especially was understanding psychology. Yeah. Uh, we did a lot of work with psychologists, psychiatrists, brain scientists, um, you know, all sorts of behavioral science people. I mean, we, we especially as a child abuse prosecutor, we, we had very, very, very deep and specific training and uh, relationships with the experts in these fields. So we got to go much deeper than anybody else did in the legal community because we had access to very different people given the work that we were doing. So getting into that work helped me understand what is the psychology of people? Like, how do they think? How do they store memories? How do we trigger them? What are the different pieces that we need to use in order to influence them? So 
what I'll do when I'm talking to a founder like this is, hey, I get that you want it to be about the business. The only way it gets to be about the business is if you clear hurdle one. Hurdle one is, do I trust you? Do I think that you can pull this off? Do I like you? Do I want to be in business with you for the next five, 10 years? Like right. these, th that is literally hurdle one. If you do not clear it, you're not getting to talk about the business. So I get if you want to talk about the business and that's great, you should, but you have to talk about yourself. And, and, and I say, it's not about selling yourself. It's about being yourself mm. because that. what we're doing is we're letting them see exactly who you are. And what that's going to create is a filtering mechanism where the wrong investors or the wrong talent or the wrong customers are going to say, Hey, that's not the right fit for me. Great. Get them out of there. And the right ones are going to say, this is the exact person I've been looking for all my life. And they're going to be so bought in that you can do anything with them because they want to support you in the journey. Because here's what happens when you focus on that hurdle one, what you've done is you've now framed the conversation in a much more positive light. You've gone from glass half empty to glass half full. You've gone from an investor looking for red flags to an investor looking for green flags. Mm. All because now they know you, they trust you, they believe in you, they see something special in you. That's why the founder story is so important. And it's what I'll talk to with any founder if they give me that pushback of, oh, no, I shouldn't talk about myself. Yeah. And I have plenty of, of stories and case studies and all this sort of stuff from the work I've done to show that. Plus, I can also show it from my own experience as a trial lawyer. Well, and one thing a founder should care about is, uh, uh, you know, is hitting certain metrics, execution, achieving the goal. And so if you can show them that <laughs> telling their founder story will achieve that, it's probably easier for them to swallow that pill, I imagine. And so if you convince them that that uh, that far and they're like, OK, cool. Um, I see the value. I'll take that that lens off and and stop viewing it from that perspective. What's the next step in terms of them really understanding the skill of storytelling and how to leverage that consistently? So there's two pieces to storytelling, right? There's crafting the story and there's delivering the story. Yeah. So if we think, and obviously that's very basic. There's a lot of pieces inside of that, but at its core, it's craft the story, tell the story. Mm -hmm. Step one, once we pass that first hurdle, is we have to craft the story. And we have to craft the founder story, and we have to craft the vision story. And this is what I call emotional storytelling, where the origin story sets the frame of how I got here. The future story says where we're going. Mm -hmm. And the piece in the middle, the step-by-step, -step, how you're going to get there, is all left blank. Because that's emotional storytelling. You're allowing the other person to say, oh, I see how you get to that big vision. I understand. You can do this, this, and this. And every person is going to be a little bit different. But as long as they have a general idea of, oh, yeah, I believe in you. And I understand why your vision is so big. Now we can we can let them do that path for them. Mm -hmm. And what you'll see is with startups, we'll move that line up. So like your series A is going to go here. Your series B is going to go here. Your series C is here. And then finally you get to IPO, which is the future vision we were talking about from day one. Now, once we map out and craft the story, great. That's wonderful. Now it's about delivering the story. And delivering the story is a totally different skill set uh, than crafting the story. Because it really takes uh, understanding of oratory, rhetoric, all these different pieces. So we'll start with very basic things, right? Like what's the, the pacing that you should, should go at? What's the tone that you want to speak with? Uh, how do you use pausing so that you can sound more polished, right? We want you to sound like a leader. We want you to sound like someone who's in control, who's confident in the messaging. Because if you're not, your voice will give it away. Your voice will quite literally change if you are not confident in your head. Yeah. So when we think about delivery, this is where I like to... The, the baseline is I like to tell founders, you should be using what I call conversational storytelling. And conversational storytelling is, it's not like I'm going to button up and be like, 
Well, let me tell you my story now about how I got into this. And I started here and in, when I was 18, I made this move. No, like we're not doing that. It's, Hey, like, let me tell you about my, like how I got here. It's pretty interesting, but jump in when you have questions. I started when I was 18, I did X, Y, and Z, right? It's a tone, it's an approach so that it invites a conversation throughout the story. And what that means is we have off ramps and on ramps where it's very easy to go off and talk about other stuff and then come back onto the story and continue going on. And this is a skill that uh, founders really need to have because it invites an investor to build a connection with you instead of being talked at, they're being talked with. Hmm. And so that's the, the kind of core piece that I would start with any founder is how do we create that conversational storytelling inside of you? And this is always interesting when a founder will find, like when I normally say it to them, they're like, I don't exactly know what that means. I'm like, that's okay. It's one of those things I'm telling you what it is. And there will come a moment that you're just going to get it. Hmm. And I'll inevitably, it might be four weeks into our work. It might be six weeks into our work. I'll get a message and they'll be like, it, it, it happened. Like I'll literally just get a message. It'll be like, it happened. I'll be like, what, what happened? They're like, I understand what conversational storytelling is. It, it, it worked. I'm like, oh, that's great to hear. Tell me more. And then as soon as we get in that, I hear it. I'm like, okay. And they'll, they'll start using words that I've never given them. Like, oh yeah, it felt like I would just like could go off here and talk about this other thing. Then I came back onto the story and started, and I'm like, oh yeah, those are off ramps and on ramps. That's exactly what it should be. And yeah. so that's when you see the magic really click. And then it's, oh, this is a skill now that I can just use whenever. So that, I mean, one of the questions that I had, and I was going to tie it into our, you know, your experience as a trial lawyer, and we're touching on it now is, is um, how does one sharpen the ability to be able to think off the cuff if they get unexpected questions? Um, so, which is kind of where, where we're at right now, which I really love. If you understand the framework of a story, you can veer off on those off ramps and on ramps. Is there, are there any other techniques to being able to have that conversational story while bringing it back to the narrative you're trying to convey other than what than what you just said like being able to kind of think in the moment but still leverage the storytelling approach so the best impromptu speakers are never speaking impromptu mm. right that's one of the things i always love to tell people when like how do i become great at impromptu speaking i'm like guess what none of us are ever speaking impromptu because what we've done is both micro and macro preparation Macro preparation is the skills that you need in order to be comfortable in these situations, right? It's understanding frameworks in your head. It's understanding structure. It's understanding that you have stories to tell. It's knowing pacing and pausing and being comfortable there. It's really the bigger stuff. It's understanding frame control, which of course takes time, right? Frame control isn't something you learn overnight. It's something that we trained every single day as a trial lawyer. I always say it for seven years of my life, I lived 200 days a year inside of a courtroom, arguing cases in front of a judge, jury. It doesn't matter. I was always in a courtroom doing stuff. And so you learn frame control. So of course it takes time, but that's the macro preparation, right? Micro preparation is, all right, I know I'm going on a podcast, right? So if I'm going on a podcast, I know I can listen to past podcast episodes if I want to and hear what are they going to ask? What types of questions can I expect? Great. Now I have micro preparation. No, okay, I'm going to get asked this question, this question. I'm going to have answers prepared for that so I can sound more polished. Not only that, what I'm going to do is I'm also going to have set pieces prepared on micro preparation. Like I know if we're going to be talking about storytelling, for instance, there's probably a few key storytelling examples I should have ready to go that I can just bring in when I'm asked a question. That's micro preparation, right? And then you also can do what I call set pieces. These are things that you always know work. So they're key stories, anecdotes, vignettes, uh, any of that sort of stuff also turns of phrases, right? That you really like, or 
I like to use alliterations, rule of three. I'll structure things all out. There's really three things you need to know about this. Even if I don't have an answer clear in my head before I start, sometimes I'll just be like, there's three things you need to know about this. <clears throat> and then I'll figure out what those three things are. <laughs> and I'll paint them. I'll be like, the first is this, the second is this, the third is this. Well, you know what I just did right there? I structured the entire answer that I'm going to have at the top of the moment. So now my brain can keep track as well as the listener can, can follow in a, in a more easy to understand manner. So this is really what it comes down to when you're in those settings. So when I'm working with a founder, for instance, we prepare a list of 25, 30 questions that we expect that they're going to get in most meetings, because mm -hmm. if they're comfortable and familiar with them, the reality is most other questions are going to be a variation of those questions. Yeah. And so once we practice those and get those ready to go, we position them, we frame them. And then the, the key is teach the founder to really listen, active listening to the question. Don't start thinking about your answer beforehand. Listen, take a pause, two to three seconds, compose yourself, think through what is the answer and then deliver it. And that takes, again, the preparation. But if you do the preparation, you'll be ready to deliver. And one of my friends was the former speechwriter for General Mattis, General Petraeus, and Secretary Panetta, Justin Mikloy. And he, he told me one time, preparation creates precision. And I thought that, that was just brilliant because we want to be precise with the way that we communicate. And so yes. if we want to be precise, then we have to prepare ahead of time. Absolutely. I mean, dude, this is still just this. All that you're saying sounds like practice in the gym or on the field. You know, if you're going to prepare yourself for these moments where there may be some, you know, some window of opportunity for you to bust out a new move you haven't done before in a game, but it's because you practice that turn or that crossover or whatever time and time again and just being prepared. It's just getting reps in. You know, that, that's what I hear at least. I love it. Um, let's, uh, let's switch gears a little bit. Um, I know that you're working on a book. You know, we've been chatting about that on LinkedIn. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, about that, what your goal is, what the inspiration was? Is it a continuation of what you do, just offering it in a different format? The book came about because I got asked enough times, Robbie, when's the book coming? <laughs> right. And that was kind of the, the signal of, okay, maybe I should write a book, you yeah. know, I certainly did not start with that intention just like out of the blue, because here's the thing, writing a book sucks uh, in so many ways. I don't think people realize it is not a fun process. Uh, I, I ended up writing three, like I wrote version one. I completely scrapped that. I wrote version two. I completely scrapped that. I wrote version three. I read it and I was like, this is the one. So you've got to realize, I mean, I locked myself away for, you know, weekends and, and all sorts of time just to write. And it is a long process. It's stressful. It's a pain. Uh, but once I had that signal, I was like, okay, cool. The idea with the book is to share more of my background and my story as a trial lawyer and the things that I saw inside of a courtroom mm. and bring that to life in a way that demonstrates lessons and allows me to teach what I believe anybody needs to be the best at what I call competitive storytelling. And so that is looking at how do we overcome certain beliefs that people have around storytelling? What are the core stories that we actually need to build out? How do we think about terms that I call, like I said, conversational storytelling, storytelling density, approachable expertise? How do we really nail some of these things that I've found to be incredibly effective in inspiring action through storytelling? And so teaching people what that looks like, 10 word storytelling, how to come up with these ideas, what they can, can figure out there. And then we go into more of what, what is the way that you 
can persuade people? Like, what are they looking for? When you show up, are, are, how do we balance authenticity and authority? How do we think about those two principles, yeah. right? What, is that, what does that look like? What does it look like to, what is persuasion at the end of the day? Like, is it good? Is it bad? How do we think about that? Then we go into a lot of the ideas around rhetoric, oratory, delivery, musicality. Really, how do you bring these things to life? So that when somebody listens to you, they not only hear the story, but they feel the story. And that is, to me, super important. And then ultimately get into effortless storytelling, which is now that we've gone through all these principles and really gone through how you do all this, craft your story, tell your story, how do you become the storyteller who no matter where you are, you can always deliver. And people are like, that's one of the best storytellers I've ever seen. So if you're on a podcast, if you're in public, if you're at a dinner table, if you are in front of an investor, if you're at an event, it doesn't matter where you are. You can tell a story that is going to captivate people and make them want to take some sort of action. And that's really what the book is about using the lens of my experience as a trial lawyer hmm. and the, the things I've done with you know founders working with them and bringing that into a book form so people can read it, get those, those lessons, and then start you know executing and implementing them to get the results. Because you, know, you can post a lot of stuff on LinkedIn, but someone reads on LinkedIn today and it's gone tomorrow. Absolutely. The book is like designed to be like, hey, I know that I need to build my vision story. Robbie has a chapter on how to write my vision story. Great. I can open yeah. it up. I can go look at that. All right. I need to understand how to deliver the story using conversational storytelling. What does that look like? What's that sound like? Great. You can go to that chapter and read into it. And so it just becomes really a, a, a guide, a textbook, if you will. Mm -hmm. but, but through an interesting lens, the, the model of it was inspired by Chris Voss's Never Split the Difference and the way he uses FBI hostage negotiations Absolutely. as a lens. And we can do the same thing with being a trial lawyer. Absolutely. Yeah. I love that comparison. I can totally see that. And I also want to commend you because even just in your description, the, the flow is so clear, like from step one to step 10 or whatever. And so, uh, you know, that's always important in a book and a journey for the reader. And like, you just articulated that very clearly. Um, and I can see it. So yeah, man, I'm, I'm really excited for it. Uh, what, do you have a release date yet? I know we, we have July 18th. So assuming everything goes according to, to plan, July 18th, the book will be dropping. And what's the title? Competitive Storytelling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dig it, man. Um, so obviously a lot of your um, energy and passion is probably going into that project. Uh, what if you could, zoom, you know, not zoom out, but just like look a little bit further down the timeline, what are you excited about or what other big projects are you focused on or want to achieve in the next you know, year to two. Where are you trying to take competitive storytelling next? The stuff we're excited by are, it's, it's a lot of partnerships, in fact, that we're, we're talking to right now and building, uh, which gives us the ability to work at scale with a lot of founders who are going after really big problems. To me, that's the most exciting piece because we, we get a, a lot of, people coming our way, but there's a lot of vetting that then I have to do sure. on that to choose who, who we work with. And obviously yeah. that takes time away from actually doing the work. And so the thing I'm excited by is partnering with the right people who do that vetting. And then we know, Hey, these are already founders that are highly qualified that we can really impact and have that positive effect on. And so that's something that has me excited about the direction we're going because it, yeah. it means I can spend all of my time, which really is, again, my zone of genius is dealing in the storytelling with the founder themselves, 
with the, the fund manager to understand how they can really use it to inspire that action, raise capital, get the right talent and, and build the company to, to the level that, that they should be able to, because we, we want the, the good founders, the good people out there winning. And yeah. so that to me has me very excited. And then beyond that, I mean, we've got projects in the works, lots of ideas r- around videoing uh, founder stories and, and bringing those to life, more of a, a media play, if you will. That, that has me pretty excited too, because I think that there's a shortage of great founder stories out there. And I think so many founder stories that people are drawn towards, unfortunately, all look a certain way. Yeah, that's a good point. And, and we, need, we need stories out there that are more diverse so that oh. someone can look. And, and diverse is not like, it could be a trial lawyer from Dallas, Texas, who's, who's a white guy that if I share my story, now somebody else who's in that same position can realize, oh, oh I could be a founder if I wanted to. Yeah. But of course, it can also be, you know, the, the black female founder from somewhere else. It could be a founder in Latin America who comes from, you know, humble beginnings. It doesn't matter what it is, but we need those stories out there so people can see more of themselves in it and say, oh, okay, I can do that too. Here's the roadmap for me to follow. Mm-hmm. Because right now you hear too much, too much complaining out there about the world's not fair and venture capital is not fair. And, you know, part of that is, is certainly true, but part of it is we're not seeing the ones who are successful enough. And realizing that there are stories out there who are doing this. And if we realize that and gravitated towards it, we could rally behind those people and then say, okay, well, why, like, instead of me just wanting to be Ken Griffey Jr., what if <laughs> I saw these stories of founders and said, be like, I want to yeah, be yeah, no, it's such a good point. And there are so many paths to, to the goal these days. And, and often if we're just seeing these traditional conventional stories, we're not understanding that there are all these, there are all these inlets now to trying to, to achieve anything. So la- last question. Uh, and, and I'm curious about this, you know, coming from the athletic perspective, do you take the time? Are you able to take the time, uh, to be, to be proud of yourself? That's an interesting question. And I'll, I'll, I'll start with the story here because it is, related to this. When I left being a trial lawyer, mm-hmm. I love my parents dearly and my parents love me. I, I, I have had a, a wonderful upbringing. Um, I'm beyond grateful for everything that they've done. But when I told my parents that I was leaving being a trial lawyer to go and build this company, my, my dad sat across the table from me and said, son, this is the stupidest thing I've ever <laughs> yeah. heard of you. And, and here's the, the thing. I agree with him. I like, I really do agree with him. It was the stupidest thing that I've ever said. I've talked about like these different realities and I really do believe this. I think there's 10 realities. And like, if there, if there were 10 realities out there, this is like the one that I happened to pull it off because things just went right. It played out in my favor. That means nine out of 10 times, I think he would have been right that this was a bad decision. I should have stayed a trial lawyer. And it's that understanding that you know, again, I, I, I tell it from a place of love because he really was just trying to look out for me. He didn't understand what yeah. I was doing. He didn't know the market. He thought I had this very stable job. Why would I make this mistake? Yeah. But what happened is, oh, you know, as time progressed, he continued to be a, a real skeptic for a while. And it was, you know, about a year and a half into that, that journey when he, he came to me and he was like, son, I, I, was, I was wrong. Like, I am so proud of what you have done and what you've been able to accomplish. And to this day, he continues to reiterate that. He's like, every time you talk to me, and, and we talk all the time, yeah. he's like, every time you talk to me about the business, like, I'm just blown away. Like, I'm so proud that you went for this and didn't listen to me back then. <laughs> yeah. And so 
you know, I think that it's, I, I say that just as a reminder, it's, it's hard for a lot of people to understand why we do the things that we do. Um, and so sometimes people get discouraged when friends or family say those things like that. And instead it, it's not coming from a place of hatred or, or being mean spirited. It's, it's a place of, of love many yeah, times. Totally. And if we push through it, then we can get to that point. Now, am I proud of myself? I am right. I, 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 I think about that. Now I'm also one of those people, again, I, the people I studied through history were Alexander the Great, Napoleon, right. Julius Caesar. Yeah. I mean, you yeah. people who were JFK is my favorite speaker of all time. He, he literally decided to put a man on the moon and bring them back home. Like that's that's insane. Uh, you know, as I think about it, I'm I'm very proud of what we've done, but I'm also never like never satisfied. I think that's the yeah. athlete. I totally. think it's, there's a quote from from Kobe um, that I heard that really sums this up, and it's Kobe was willing to. Kobe was willing to chase perfection, knowing that he would never get there. And it was the fact that he knew he would never get there that allowed him to be better than anybody else because nobody else would chase something they knew they would never get to. And the simple act of chasing that idea of perfection is what continued his growth throughout his career. So good. And that's really how I think about it. Like, I know what I'm chasing. I know I'll never get there. But that's the thing that continues to drive me. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm not proud of what I've done, but yeah. there's always that balance of, yeah, I'm proud, but I know how much further I have to go because yeah. I know the impact that I want to have. I know the things that I saw back as a trial lawyer. I know what needs to be done to solve a lot of that stuff. And that means having a huge impact that's you know out in front so those downstream effects can really take place, which means I can't be complacent. I can't, I can't be you know, happy with good enough. Like that's just not the way I'm built. And so again, that Kobe quote always just sits with me where it's just keep going, chase perfection. That's so good, man. I got chills. Uh, this is a perfect place to end today's conversation. I'm so glad I asked that question. And you know what? It's always the, uh, the long shot. Um, the, 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 the one reality where this, this exists, that movies, uh, that stories, good stories are made of. So that's, that's one worth telling Robbie, man, I appreciate your time. This was inspiring and also like just full of great information. I know my listeners will be very, uh, very excited for this episode, man. Appreciate your time. It's great to connect with you officially and, uh, good luck with the book. I can't wait to read it. Thanks so much. Appreciate having me. All right, brother. My name is Rain Bennett. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed that episode, do us a favor and subscribe to the podcast. If you're already a subscriber and you're enjoying the show, give us a review and let us know the value that you've gotten from it. We love to hear from our listeners and learn about the benefits that they're getting from the show. That's what fuels us and that's what fuels the show. And if you've already subscribed and you've already reviewed it and you think there's someone else that would benefit from listening to this show, please, please share it with them. The more we grow, the more we can help you grow and that's what we're here to do. Join us next time on the Storytelling Lab. This podcast is a Six Second Stories production. Six Second Stories is a story coaching and consulting company that builds online education, in-person and virtual training, and digital products that help businesses master storytelling to find their ideal customers and market to them effectively. You can learn more at sixsecondstories.com and purchase the book Six Second Stories at Amazon, barnesandnoble.com, or rainbennett.com slash sixsecondstories. 
HelloFresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.